0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near in the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your word, your law, the revelation of righteousness. And we pray this morning that our hearts would be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ as we come under conviction of sin. We pray for sinners among us who have not yet repented, that they would believe on Jesus, that you would search their hearts and convince them of their sin, that they see the need of Christ and come to him. We pray you would anoint the hearing and preaching of your word, and please see to it that the word is effective in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. So we're in the Ten Commandments this morning, as we have been for a while, and this is the natural law of God. I've been telling you that um, regularly, and it is the constitution of reality, meaning that this is how the natural world works. This is how reality works. So if you want to function properly in reality, you want to see the Ten Commandments as a guide for life. They will lead you through reality. The minute you step outside of God's law is the minute that you start living outside of reality. Just as science, nature itself has laws like gravity and so on, so the moral and ethical world has laws, and the Ten Commandments reveal those laws to us. We have been in the uh, Seventh Commandment for a while now. You shall not commit adultery. And I'll continue on in that commandment today. And as the Ten Commandments tell us or teach us that how to live, they, don't, um, they cannot save us. They do teach us how to live, but they can't save us. So if you're coming to the Ten Commandments looking for a way to get saved, well, the Ten Commandments won't save you. The only way to be saved is in Jesus Christ, the Savior, and the Ten Commandments teach you about your sin, and then you must run to Jesus for forgiveness for your sins. And so as you come under conviction for sin, uh, through the preaching of God's law, I command you in the name of Christ to go to Jesus so that you can find forgiveness. You don't want to come to the Ten Commandments and God's law and start getting defensive and start you know, running away from the truth or start thinking that if you just do this, you will live, No, you want to come to the Ten Commandments and you want to learn from them, you want to be humbled by them, and you want to run to Jesus when you come under the conviction of sin. And so this is the case of the Seventh Commandment also. The Seventh Commandment is you shall not commit adultery. And um, if the commandment forbids something, I've really tried to emphasize this, it also commands the opposite good. It demands the opposite good. And So if the commandment forbids Adultery, well, it commands the opposite, demands the opposite good. So you should love your wife, love your husband. Um, this would be the opposite of committing adultery. And the act of adultery is an act of hatred. It's an act of treason against the marriage. And so the opposite would be true. You must love your wife. You must love your husband. In fact, if you love your wife, if you love your husband, you won't commit adultery because you will love him or her. Um, you shall be intimate in marriage. This is one of the ways that you're to love your wife or love your husband is regular intimacy, which would be commanded is the opposite of the forbidden. The forbidden is adultery, while the opposite good would be intimacy within marriage. You shall protect your marriage. You shall esteem marriage. These are all opposite goods. And so what I've done is I, as I've tried to preach the opposite good of the evil that's forbidden is I've talked about the beauty of marriage over these last few weeks. I've talked about the purpose of marriage. I talked about finding a spouse because um, you want to have a sound and healthy marriage, and so you want to be led to the right person and marry the right person. And then I talked about loving your spouse with good communication last week. Hope you found that helpful. Hope that it was instructional to you and it brought about some good... Healthy conversations and some apologies and some seeking for forgiveness uh, within your marriages if it was needed and perhaps, hopefully, some changes. Well, today, what I want to talk about is loving your spouse by pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness. God willing, this will be the last sermon on the seventh commandment in this series, and then we'll move on to the eighth commandment next week. But I wanted to spend some time on loving your spouse by pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today, pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness in marriage. Now, one of the things I like to do, I, like, I meet a lot of people, and one of the things I like to do when I meet people who are much older than me and who have been married much longer than me is I like to ask them um, if they could give me any advice on how to have a good marriage because I figure I've got things to learn yet. And so certainly someone who's further down the road than me Um, Has typically has some really good advice to share. And bar none, the typical, I usually get, you know, there's usually a few things that people say, but this always comes up pretty well every single time. If I meet someone who's like 70 or 80 years old and and they have a good marriage and they've had a happy marriage their whole life, uh, they've, you know, like no marriage is perfect, but they've been successful in cultivating a happy home, this always comes up, always. And it is forgive one another. They say that forgiveness is the key. I think there's so much truth to that because when you get married, the biggest problem with marriage is that it's the biggest problem, bar none, the biggest problem is that you have two sinners coming together. That is the biggest problem in your marriage and that is that the husband is a sinner and the wife is a sinner. It's always gonna be the biggest problem in marriage. So you get two sinners that come together and then what happens because you love each other so much and you trust each other so much and you're so vulnerable with each other when one party is sinned against it's that much more painful which makes forgiveness that much more difficult because there's so much trust and so much vulnerability and love that is supposed to be there within marriage so that when there is sin the sin the pain of the sin is amplified which means that the need for forgiveness is amplified. It, it just becomes all the greater. And so today, I wanna to talk about forgiveness. And really, that is the goal of reconciliation. It's forgiveness. That's what reconciliation is, it's forgiveness. And we'll talk, I'll talk a bit about forgiveness, and then at the end of my sermon, I'm gonna to touch a little bit, a bit on, on bitterness. So here's how my sermon's gonna go. I have seven very quick points this morning. And the seven very quick points that I'm going to look at are seven imperatives of conflict resolution or reconciliation within marriage. And these are all leading towards forgiveness. Seven imperatives. I'll list them now, but you'll get them as we go along. The first thing you've got to do as you're seeking to resolve conflict or reconcile within marriage is you have to ask yourself, is this even worth dealing with? The second thing you need to do is always assume the best of each other. Third, ask, is this an issue of sin? Sometimes things aren't sin, even though they bother you. Fourth, gently and quickly confront the issue with the goal of reconciliation. Fifth, pattern reconciliation after the gospel. Sixth, forgive like Jesus does, and seventh, kill bitterness. So, it seems like a lot, but we're going to try our best to get through it this morning. Number one. So the number one imperative, the first imperative I have here for reconciliation and forgiveness within marriage is ask the question, when an issue comes up in your marriage and there's something that's troubling you, and there always will be, this has happened, this happens, it's normal in marriage for this to happen. If you think you're weird because you have issues in your marriage, no, everyone has them because you have two human beings come together and human beings are sinners. So you have to ask the question, is this issue... Worth dealing with? Is it worth dealing with? Life is so busy and so complex, and there are so many things that arise in life that there are many things I submit to you that simply are not worth dealing with. Now, when you're, I, I really, from my own experience, my own experiences is that when I was newly married, it seemed like everything was worth dealing with. But now that I've been married longer than two decades, it seems like, you know what, there's all kinds of things that are just, they're worth overlooking because they're not as important as I might have thought they were 20 years ago. And so you always have to ask the question, is it worth dealing with? First, Peter 4 verse 8 tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. And Proverbs 19:11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And similarly, Proverbs 17, verse 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. And so you have this emphasis in the Bible that it is wise, it is glorious, it is loving simply to cover an offense. Which means there are certain things that will frustrate you, that will disappoint you, that that will bother you, that you just learn in life to overlook, and it is a sign of wisdom if you can figure out how to overlook it. This is how you have long-lasting, enduring relationships. We live in a world where people are very easily offended. Do you ever find that? Easily offended. Emotionally fragile people. And I think a lot of times is people are simply taught to be that way because their parents bubble wrap them and they cater to their whining. And so if you're catering to your kids whining, what you're doing is you're teaching your children to be emotionally fragile and to get what they want by whining. But one of the things that you want to teach your kids and one of the things that you want to learn to be as an adult is not to be emotionally fragile. And instead of being emotionally fragile, to have Um, a toughness about your own personal constitution so that you're not easily offended. People that are easily offended are difficult to get along with, they're miserable to be around, and you don't want to be easily offended. You want to be wise, and you want to overlook an offense very quickly. Many people are very easily offended, they're very emotionally fragile, and then what happens is, if a relationship doesn't center around his or her emotional state, then the relationship automatically falls apart. Well, they're not catering to my emotional state at the moment so I can no longer be friends with this person, Uh, lashing out in emotional anger, lashing out claiming I'm hurt all the time. And if the relationship, especially the marriage, doesn't center around an individual's emotional state, well, the relationship tends to fall apart because they're fools. But love covers a multitude of sins. And whoever covers an offense seeks love. There are so many things in life that just need to be overlooked. And it is a sign of maturity if you can learn to overlook some things. And in fact, I think it's a sign of maturity if you can discern what needs to be overlooked and what ought not be overlooked. And this takes time. So the first thing you've got to do is you're seeking to get along in marriage. You're seeking to reconcile a marriage. You're seeking to work things out and pursue forgiveness in marriage and have a peaceful home and issues come up, you've got to ask the question, is this worth dealing with? And if it's not worth dealing with, that means you're making the conscious decision not to think about it. And it comes up in your mind, you kill the thought. That's what it means. It's not, it's not saying, well, it's not worth dealing with, so I'm going to let it gnaw away in my heart. That's bitterness. And we'll talk about that at the end of the sermon. No, it's not worth dealing with, so I'm not going to think about it. You say, well, I can't control what I think about. Well, then you need to get control of your mind. Because you're immature of a Christian if you can't get control over what you think about. And you need to be able to get control of your mind. And if you say it's not worth thinking about, that means I'm committing, and I'm being self-disciplined not to think about it. But if it is worth thinking about, and it is worth dealing with, we move on to... The second imperative that I wanna talk about this morning, and that is always assume the best. This is especially true in marriage. You always have to assume the best. Now, there's some relationships where, you're, where someone is an adversary to you, they're an enemy, and you're not assuming the best, and, and that makes sense because they've proven themselves to be untrustworthy people and nasty people over time. But certainly in a marriage relationship and in a friendship relationship, um, you want to assume the best of people. You become easily offended when you perceive everything as an offense. The way somebody looks at you, the way somebody says something, and then you start imputing motives. Well, I know that she did it because she wanted to spite me. I know that he was trying to take a dig at me. That's the reason he looked at me. That's why he forgot to say I love you on the way out the door this morning. Because he was trying to spite me. Well, you've got to learn in the context of marriage to assume the best of one another. And so 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7 is helpful with this, where it says, love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So you're hoping and you're believing for the best in the individual. This, of course, sermon, at this point, the sermon applies to all relationships, friendly relationships at least, and um, it should most definitely apply to your marriage relationship. So if, if the tone, if his tone bothered you, maybe it's worth confronting. It might be. But try to assume that he had the best intention behind it and might not even have been aware of it. That, that's what you have to assume. If you start assuming the worst, then you get yourself into trouble or if, if the look bothered you, or the absence of an act of love bothered you, it might be worth talking about. It might be. It could be. But even if it is worth talking about, you need to assume the best in the moment. Maybe he was busy. Maybe she had something else on her mind. Maybe he lacked awareness in the moment. And just assuming the best and this is especially true when love is present so always assume the best number that's the second imperative the first imperative is ask is this worth dealing with the second imperative is always assume the best and the third imperative is this ask the question if we're going to deal an issue with an issue of marriage and we're going to pursue reconciliation ask the question is this sin is it actually sin? Not all things produce a, neg- or sorry, not all things that produce a negative emotional response are sin. Just because you find it offensive doesn't mean God does. Again, this there's a me-centeredness in our day and age, and again, I think this comes from bad parenting, where kids are taught that their feelings are most important. So parents cater to a kid's feelings, and then the kid grows up and enters the world and thinks that, assumes that everything that offends his or her feelings is now evil. And and by the way, if that's your mindset, understand this concept here. If your mindset is that everything that hurts your feelings is sin, then your mindset is that you are God. Because only God determines what sin is. So you need to have the ability to remove yourself from the situation and evaluate whether or not, not whether it's offensive to you or it upsets you, but whether it's offensive to God. And if it's offensive to God, then it's sin. If it's not offensive to God, it's not sin. And always remember, as I think about this and try to apply this to my own life, I try to remember this very important point. And that is that the Pharisees found Jesus offensive. Finding something offensive doesn't mean that is bad. In fact, the reason it might offend you is because it's truth and it's good for you. Always bear that in mind. Your feelings and your mood are not the gauge of right and wrong. So the Bible tells us how we gauge what right and wrong is, and that's what I've been trying to do through this series on the Ten Commandments, and we gauge what is right and wrong by the law of God. Romans 3, verse 20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. How do you know what sin is? Through the law. So, not only should you ask yourself whether the issues that come up in your marriage are worth dealing with, Not only should you be assuming the best of your husband or wife, but you should be able to objectively evaluate, dispassionately remove yourself from the situation, take your knowledge of God's word, and answer the question, is this sin? Now, just because it's not sin doesn't mean it's not worth dealing with. Like, some things that aren't sin are still worth dealing with because you have to learn to work together, and there's ways to manage a household, and Um, There's ways to put things away, and there's ways to clean things up, and there's ways to parent children, and there's ways to spend money. And and so you have to come together and work things through, even if they're not sin. But it helps you evaluate the tone and tenor and the severity of the conversation if you can determine whether the issue at hand is sin. It'll help you evaluate the urgency of what you're dealing with if you can actually evaluate whether it's sin. If you put your feelings in the place of God, you're setting yourself up, is God in your home and that's never a good idea. When, I ask, when I'm telling you to ask the question whether something is sin, what I'm telling you to do is determine and resolve in your mind that only God and God alone is God in your home. Not you, not your feelings, not your mood, not your emotional state at the time. What I'm not saying, just because it's not sin, there's some things that aren't sin that you still have to deal with. Because there's practical things of life that aren't sin issues that need to be worked out. As two people learn to work together and manage a home. But determining whether it's sin helps determine how serious of a matter it is. And also helps determine whether forgiveness needs to be offered. Forgiveness doesn't need to be offered or asked for rather, requested, if there's no sin involved. So that's the third imperative. Here's the the fourth one. I want to talk about this morning and this is probably the longest point of the morning and that is that you need to gently and quickly confront issues with the goal of restoration so I just these are all how to evaluate the situation the first three points were how to evaluate the situation you're determining whether it's worth dealing with you're assuming the best and you're asking whether it's sin. So this helps you evaluate what's at hand. So you're diagnosing things. Well, now what we're getting is into what to do once you're going to finally deal with the situation that you're dealing with in your marriage. And you want to gently and quickly confront the issues with the goal of restoration. I'll talk about all of this. Many marriages, and I think this is the big problem, that one of the big problems that we find in marriages Issues are not dealt with, and issues stockpile in people's minds and hearts. They stockpile like dirty dishes, and as the years go by, people start to wonder why things stink. If you let your dishes compile in the kitchen dirty, the kitchen's going to stink, And if you let issues compile in your marriage, your marriage is going to stink. And so you have the issues that are worth dealing with, even as you assume the best, you have to deal with them gently and quickly with the goal of reconciliation. So when I say the goal of reconciliation, it's not the goal of scoring a point. It's not the goal of going tit for tat. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You insulted me, I'm going to insult you. That's not the goal. Not for the goal of getting back at an individual. It's with the goal of of restoring the relationship. That's the objective. You must quickly and gently confront issues. Otherwise, I've said it before over these last few weeks, the issues become like a massive hairball in the throat. The cats don't get hairballs in a day, do they? They get hairballs over time. And eventually what happens is the cat coughs up a hairball. And if you don't deal with issues in your marriage, you're going to get hairballs in your throat. It's kind of like a garden that needs to be weeded. If you don't weed the garden, what happens? Well, eventually you don't have a garden. I had a the last house I lived in. We had a really lovely garden in the front yard that I worked hard on. Well, the people who now own the house forgot about the garden. You go by now, there's no garden, right? Because you have to work the garden. And if you don't work the garden, you get weeds, and that's the way the marriage is. If you don't deal with the issues, you eventually wake up and you don't even have a marriage. You just got two people living together, roommates, that are just trying to save face, and eventually things blow up. Or if you don't dust your house, what happens? Well, the house gets increasingly dusty. It needs to be dusted on a regular basis, otherwise it becomes very dusty. And if you don't oil the engine in your vehicle, what happens? Well, it's going it's to blow up, and you're going to need a new vehicle. So, you know, not dealing with issues in your marriage is, is like a hairball, it's like an unweeded garden, it's like a house that's not dusted, it's like an engine that's not oiled. The engine always needs oiled. the house always needs dusting, the garden always needs gardening. And so you have to deal with things. And you have to deal with them quickly, and you have to deal with them with gentleness. Ephesians chapter 4 says, verse 26 through 27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Did you hear that? Be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on on your anger. Make it your goal to deal with all issues before the sun goes down. It doesn't say don't go to bed on your anger. It says don't let the sun go down. Most of us go to bed after the sun goes down. When the sun's up, it's easier to deal with issues. You ever notice that? At night, you're tired. After a long day, you just want to kind of punch out and lights out, and, and you're just you're ready to put your... If you worked all day, you're ready to put your head on the pillow. But this is saying before the sun goes down. And I think it's saying by, by the time the sun's down, that's the time to deal with your issues. Now, sometimes it's not practical because there's things that come up in life. And if it's not practical, you need to pick a time in your schedule, in the next 24 hours, likely, to deal with it. So, so let's say you get the end of the day, and there's an issue in your marriage, and you haven't had a time that day to deal with it. Well, then what you need to say is you go to your wife or you go to your husband, you say, sweetheart, there's an issue I want to talk about. This is the issue I don't want to talk about right now. We, we don't have time, it's too late in the day, we gotta get the kids to bed and we're exhausted and we're tired and it won't be productive anyway. What time works tomorrow? I, you know, we'll have a conversation on the phone, that's second best, it's best to do it in person. At least a conversation on the phone, hopefully in person. Do we have to get up an extra hour early to talk about it? Do I need to come home for lunch? Do, we need to, do I need to come home from work an hour early? Do we need to get a babysitter so we can go for a walk? and talk about it while the kids aren't around. You say, well, that's expensive. Well, it's gonna be a lot more expensive if things blow up in your marriage in 10 years. So keep that in mind. You're investing in something. And you're investing in the most important relationship you have on earth is your marriage. And so if you can't deal with the issue, immediately you need to schedule a time to deal with it. And pick a time where people aren't hungry and people aren't tired And then sit down and you deal with it. I'll tell you how to deal with it in a moment. But you cannot let issues go unaddressed. You cannot let them pile up. Because when they pile up, things blow up. That's when the garden goes unweeded. That's when the oil goes, or the engine goes unoiled. That's when the cat gets the hairball. That's when the house isn't dusted. In everything in life without maintenance falls apart. You can't coast. If you're not intentional about maintaining something and building something, it just depletes and falls, it falls apart. It becomes a mess. And your marriage, because it is such an important relationship, is, is no different, and in fact, I think it is amplified. Falling apart is amplified if things aren't dealt with within your marriage. So maybe you're sitting here today and you're listening to me and you've got a whole bunch of issues that you haven't dealt with. And you know it. You know what the issues are. And I'm, I'm pressing buttons right now. And you can feel it in your heart. Well, you better deal with them today. Today's your opportunity to deal with them. So go home. Go for a walk. Even if it's, you know, kind of a miserable day. Well, you're better off going for a walk with your raincoat on. Then you are letting these issues kind of just simmer there. And And when they're simmering, they're producing toxic fumes that are gonna choke you out. And so deal with the issues. Don't let them build up. And how do you deal with the issues? Well, that's a good question. Well, it's gently and it's quickly. I've talked about the quickly part. The gently part, I talked about some last week. On how to communicate, but I want to read a passage in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. That's a great passage of scripture. But what what is the goal of what is the goal of a co- confrontation? When there's an issue that comes up, and you have any relationship where the issue comes up, especially marriage. What's the goal of confrontation? The goal of confrontation is restoration. And the the word here for restore would have been used in 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 the medical profession in those days, back in the first century. And it was used to describe the restoration of a fractured bone. What happens if you have a fractured bone and you don't restore it quickly? Well, the fracture will set and your bone is going to be permanently deformed. But if you figure out you've got a fracture, you let the doctor reset the bone. Is it painful to reset the bone? Certainly, in a day without anesthetics, it was. But is it worth it? Yes. Now, when, the, when you go in, you take your fractured bone into the doctor. The doctor, if he's a good doctor in his good bedside manner, he's not going to be rough with the bone. He, he's, not, he's not dealing with, with the bone in the same way that he would try to break concrete. He's dealing with it how? With gentleness. He's resetting it delicately. And that's what you have to do in a marriage. Is when things are out of place, you have to go back and you have to deal with the conflict and you have to reset the problem Reset the relationship with a level of delicacy to restore it. So here's, here's a little example of how that might work. You've got to watch how you say things. So I've, I've already talked about that last week. And if you have an issue that needs to be dealt with, I find that sometimes in, in marriage it's, it's helpful to pray about the matter first. You, you sit down and you pray about it first. Because if you go into it like, I'm going to get my way in this situation, then you got a problem. But if you go into it saying we're both bending our knees to God and we want God to have his way in this situation, then things are a little bit better. And then what you might want to do, I found that this, if things are really tense in marriage, although it's difficult when things are tense, I found that it's a very helpful thing to sit there and hold hands and look each other in the eye when you talk. Because that, that just really lowers the level of tension. You know, you feel like your blood's boiling, and you gotta deal with something that's really bothering you. To, to actually pray and set things right with God first, and then to hold hands, express love to each other by holding hands and looking each other in the eye, I think really settles things down. I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm just saying that's a helpful piece of advice that I've learned. And then, and then what you do is you enter in the conversation. You say, well, this is what you did. This happened, it's a matter of historical fact. It happened. And this is why it troubled me. And just lay it out there. And then you employ all of the communication techniques that I talked about last week, which you learned last week. Listen carefully, ensure that you understand, mind the heart, both couples or both people in the relationship have to mine what's going on in the heart, dig dig deeply into the heart. You're not just going for the words that are said. You're, you're actually trying to dig out what the intent and, uh, is behind those words and what's going on in the heart, and you're digging out deeply. So this is what you did. This is why it troubled me. And then when that is said, the receiving party, the party who is, you know, offended somebody, the one who's being confronted. You say, did I understand you right? I did this, and you repeat it in your own words. This is how it bothered you, is that right? And then you repeat these steps until there's understanding. I talked about that last week, I'm emphasizing it again this week because I think it's very important to emphasize. But you repeat this until everybody's understood. It was William Gouge said in many years ago, he says, When either husband or wife has fallen into any sin, a mutual duty it is for the other to use what redress may be of that sin. As if one of them were wounded, the other must take care for the healing of that wound. So that's a good way to see it. When you're going into a a confrontation in your marriage, you're not going to war. You're you're not going toe-to-toe and eye-to-eye with your enemy. You're a You're a doctor who's dressing a wound. And you're trying to bring about healing. Because if you go in to the discussion, eye to eye, toe to toe, with an enemy, nothing as good is going to be accomplished and only bad is going to be accomplished. But as you go in as a doctor or a nurse who's attempting to dress a wound, then you understand that it's delicate, it's a sensitive situation, something is out of whack, and we need to restore it. That's what restoration is. We want to restore The relationship. And so the fourth imperative that I offered you this morning is that gently and quickly you must confront issues with the goal of restoration. Now, one of the previous points that I made is you have to discern whether things are sin. Well, you can still have a discussion like this if things aren't sin. You probably should, because there's all kinds of things that need to be done in marriage that aren't sin issues. But one of the ways that you discern how to move forward is by discerning whether an issue is sin. So maybe somebody, there's silly things that come up in marriage, maybe somebody didn't put the toilet paper roll the back way, on the right way. Um, you know, people do this, and that's not a sin issue, is it? But it just might be a, we're going to help things roll smoothly issue. We're going to create an order type issue. Maybe, maybe that's it. And so that, that's a really easy way forward. But maybe it's an issue of consideration. Well, maybe you didn't think about this, or you're trying to get on the same page in how you discipline the kids. I mean, there's all kinds of things. How you plan a budget, what your goals are financially, and so on. Whether you're going to make a big, life-changing decision or not. These aren't always sin issues. But there are issues that need to be discussed. And you need to employ the uh, rules that I offered to you last week. Now, if it is a sin issue, if it is a sin issue, then we have these next few points that I'm going to make. If it is a sin issue. And remember, the advice that I get from the older folks as I talk to them and ask them how to have a good marriage is they say, you've got to have forgiveness. Because if you don't have forgiveness, you're going to have problems. You've got to be able to forgive one another. So I've given you four imperatives so far. I'll list them off to you, and then I'll go to my fifth one which is how to reconcile after there's been a sin in your marriage. Step, the first imperative is ask, is this worth dealing with? The second imperative is always assume the best. The third is ask, is this sin? The fourth is gently and quickly confront the issue with the goal of restoration. And the fifth um, imperative is this. Pattern your reconciliation after the gospel. What's oh, the gospel? So if you're a Christian, this is easy. You treat reconciliation in your marriage like you treat reconciliation with God. If you've sinned against God, what do you do? Well, you're confronted in your sin, the Holy Spirit will confront you, and then you go to God, you confess your sin, and you ask God to forgive you your sin, and then God forgives you your sin, and then God doesn't count your sin against you, and now you have a free and open relationship with God again. This is how reconciliation takes place within the context of the gospel. And this is how reconciliation should take place in the context of your home. The guilty party confesses sin, admits it, apologizes for the sin, but doesn't stop at apologizing, actually requests forgiveness. If If you've sinned against your wife or your husband in your marriage, it's not enough just to say, well, I'm sorry. You actually must request forgiveness. So example, I sinned by doing this, this was the sin, name it, violated such and such command. I am sorry I was wrong, will you please forgive me? Maybe it's something as as simple as losing your temper or speaking a sharp word. And that happens, well this pattern needs to be repeated because all of that is sin. Now you don't go to someone you've sinned against and say, I'm sorry that I offended you. That's putting the onus on them. That's kind of a rude way of saying, you're the problem because you got offended. Or a subtle way of saying that. You don't do that. You say, I'm sorry, I did this. And you take responsibility for what you did. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And make sure you name the sin. Don't shy away from naming the sin. Actually name it. Not I'm sorry I bothered you, not even I'm sorry I sinned, I'm sorry that I did this sin, name the sin, and then list exactly what you did. And then you say, please forgive me. And this is in line with what the Bible says, 1 John 1 verse 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so our relationship with each other is modeled after our relationship with God. He patterns kind of the rhythm of forgiveness in our relationships as we learn forgiveness from him. And then, so that's pattern your reconciliation after the gospel. That was my fifth point. So I've talked, one, ask, is this worth dealing with? Two, always emphasize the best, or assume the best. Three, ask, is this sin? Four, gently and quickly confront issues with the goal of reconciliation. Five, pattern reconciliation after the gospel. And six, forgive like Jesus does. Forgive like Jesus does. Our forgiveness, just as reconciliation is modeled after Christ, our forgiveness is modeled after Christ. And we see this in scripture. So for example, Ephesians 4 verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, our forgiveness towards one another, especially in marriage, is modeled after Christ. Colossians 3 verse 12 through 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other is the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We must forgive as Christ has forgiven. And what is forgiveness? Talk about that for a minute. What is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? Well, Psalm 103, verses 11 through 12 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's forgiveness. How far is the east from the west? Well, it's infinitely far. If, if the Bible said as far as the north is from the south, you can actually measure north pole to south pole, can't you? But you can't measure east from west. It just goes round and round and round and round and round. But, and, and so this is an infinite forgiveness. It's, it's a commitment to not think about the sin not talk about the sin, not leverage the sin. One uh, pastor, Chris Bronze, in a book that I found very helpful, defined forgiveness as this. A commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant for moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Sometimes there's consequences for sin. You can't get beyond that. But the person who sinned against, is moving forward with reconciliation and not badgering the person who sinned against them with their sin. Some of you are like, well, this is really hitting at some gnawing away at some tough spots in my life because you've been sinned against greatly, whether in marriage or otherwise. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about forgiveness and dealing with all the difficult issues that some of you will face in this, but I will recommend a book. And the book is called Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Bronze, And so if you're um, struggling with forgiveness or you want to know more about forgiveness and how to forgive in very difficult situations, which I'm not talking about today, I will recommend you pick up that book and give it a good read. I found it very helpful. But you have to forgive like Jesus forgives. You have to forgive like Jesus forgives. And how many times does Jesus forgive? As many times as you sin. And so why is forgiveness so important in marriage? Because you have two sinners who are coming together and you have to forgive like Jesus forgives. And so some people think that forgiveness means saying, I forgive you. They say, well, I forgive you. That means no. Forgiveness isn't just saying, I forgive you. Forgiveness is the conscious decision not to bring it up, not to think about it, not to dwell on it again. And so let's say, let's say your wife sins against you, your husband sins against you, and, and he or she confesses it to you, asks your forgiveness, and you forgive him or her. And you say, I forgive you. Well, 24 hours from now, you might be tempted to be unforgiving again. But when you said those words, I forgive you, you made the commitment that if you're tempted 24 hours from now to be unforgiving over that particular issue again, you're going to kill that thought in your brain and in your heart. You're not going to dwell on it. You're not going to bring it up. You're not going to keep score. You're not going to go tit for tat on it. You're not going to stew over it because you made the commitment and you're going to let your yes be yes and your no be no. And you're not bringing it up 24 hours from now. You're not bringing it up 10 years from now because you uttered those words, I forgive you. And you're treating the issue like God treats it. How would you like it if God forgave you and then five years from now beat you over the head with what you did? That's not how God forgives you, and that's not how we're to forgive one another. Granted, there's difficult decisions or difficult issues in marriage where trust may be severely violated and it will take time to rebuild trust. Sometimes that is the case, and that's why I offered you that book. I recommended it earlier if you're dealing with some very severe issues and trust needs to be rebuilt and so on. You can make reference of that and read it in your own time. But the goal of forgiveness is not to badger each other five weeks from now or three months from now or two years from now. It's to say, I forgive you like God forgives you. And if you bring this stuff up two weeks from now and you dwell on it in your heart and you stew on it in your heart, what you are communicating is that you do not believe in the forgiveness of God. Jesus said, how many times did Jesus talk about this? Forgive as you have been forgiven. And if you don't forgive as you have been forgiven, then you don't understand the forgiveness of sins because if you're in awe of the forgiveness of sins that's been granted to you, it will be much easier for you to forgive other people because you realize how much a sinner you are and the great debt you owe to God and God chose to pardon you. And one of the things that you're doing when you forgive people, Christians especially, is you're choosing to see those people as God sees them. So let's say your husband sins against you. He comes to you and he says, I sinned against you. This was the sin. Will you please forgive me? I'm very sorry. Please forgive me. And you say, I forgive you. And then five weeks from now, you bring it up again and you throw it in his face. And you're using that as leverage to control him by guilt. Do you know that the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren? It's Satan that leverages our previous sins against us. So in that moment when you're taking that sin that you said is forgiven it forgiven and you're bringing it up in his face or her face 5 weeks from now or 5 days from now or 24 hours from now or 10 years from now and you're throwing it in his face you are doing so with a serpentine twang That's not the holy spirit speaking through you That's serpentine You you have the scent of a snake in your breath Because when God forgives you, it's done. And he makes the decision that he's not going to beat you over the head. And so you're looking at that person. When you're forgiving that person who's a Christian, what you're looking at is you're choosing to see them as God sees them. And how does God see them? Is righteous in Jesus Christ. And guess what? That sin that your husband committed against you, or that sin that your wife committed against you, was even more so a sin against God. And in Christ, that person stands forgiven. And so we ought not go after someone that is forgiven by God, but we must choose to see him or her as God forgives them. Are there sometimes consequences for sin when trust is severely violated? Most definitely. And all those caveats are available for you in that little book I recommended. But do not not confuse forgiveness with saying you are forgiven. Forgiveness is the conscious decision not to leverage it over the person and throw it in the face again. To forgive just as God forgives. That's what forgiveness is. And So you must forgive like Jesus does. So I've given you six imperatives. One, ask is it worth dealing with? Two, always assume the best. Three, ask, is this sin? Four, gently and quickly confront the issues with the goal of reconciliation or restoration. Five, pattern your reconciliation after the gospel. Six, forgive like Jesus does. And one more quick point before before we're done today. One more quick point, kill bitterness. Bitterness is a sixth commandment violation but it's also a seventh commandment violation when it's done in the context of marriage. And it is dwelling on sin in the heart. When you're offended by somebody and you dwell on it in your heart and you stew on it. And there's people who, who are elderly who have become very bitter over their lives. They're covetous of other people. They feel like they've been wronged in a way that they shouldn't have been wronged. And they refuse to to give that over to the Lord, and they dwell on it, and it oozes out of them. Have you ever met someone that's so bitter you can tell they're bitter by the look on their face? I certainly have. I can tell the bitter by the tone in their voice. It's just there's there's something that's toxic about the way they talk. Instead of moving on and giving these issues over to God, they're dwelling on the offenses against them instead of delighting in the goodness of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 tells us that love keeps no record of wrongs. If you're keeping a record of wrong of anyone, especially your wife or your husband, you're bitter. You're bitter. Is there issues in your marriage that you're keeping a record of, that you haven't dealt with? Well, if you haven't dealt with them, deal with them. But if you have dealt with them, then stop keeping a record of them. But you don't want to be keeping a record of wrongs either way because love keeps no record of wrongs if you're going to love your wife, you're not keeping a record of her wrongs. You're going to love your husband, you're not keeping a record of his wrongs. Are there issues in your marriage that need to be dealt with? If so, deal with them. And once you deal with them, they're done. You move on, it's water under the bridge. You have to kill bitterness. And the only possible way to kill bitterness, whether the relationship's been reconciled or not, if the relationship's been reconciled and forgiveness has been granted, Then you kill bitterness by understanding the way God has forgiven you. You forgive the other person. If the relationship has not been reconciled and no forgiveness has been requested and therefore none granted, you kill bitterness by casting your frustration and your anger towards the coming judgment and trust that God will deal with them in due time. It's not yours to be vindictive, it's not yours to be vengeful, it's God's. There's two ways to deal with bitterness. One is the relationship's restored, forgiveness is granted. Done. You see the person as God sees them. Two is, things haven't been dealt with, and then so you're casting all of these issues upon God, and you're trusting that in his time, he will deal with them, and you don't need to be vengeful within your own heart, and spiteful within your own heart. You have to deal with bitterness. So I've given you seven imperatives on reconciliation and marriage this morning. I the question, is this worth dealing with? Some things aren't. Some things aren't. Number two, always assume the best. Number three, ask, is this sin? Number four, gently and quickly confront the issues with the goal of reconciliation. Number five, pattern reconciliation after the gospel. Number six, forgive like Jesus does. does. Number seven, kill bitterness. I'll close with, with one quote by John Engel James, whose book on marriage I found so helpful throughout this series. There must be no searching after faults. I really hope you don't do that in your marriage. You nitpick over each other's faults. Nor examining with microscopic scrutiny, such as cannot be concealed. Because, you know, you know each other better than anyone else knows you. So, uh, it's no fun to be put under the microscope and always examined. There's got to be, these things have to be covered in love. Love. No reproachful epithets, no rude contempt, no incivility. Now, this, is, this means no insults in marriage, no jabs, no digs, no going tit-for-tat. She ticked me off, so I tick her off. This is not the way God works. No cold neglect. Some people won't go tit-for-tat, but what they'll do is they'll just shut down and say, I'm not talking to him, I'm going to teach him a lesson. Thermometer goes down, Right? There should be courtesy without ceremony, politeness without formality, attention without slavery. It should, in short, be tenderness of love, supported by esteem and guided by politeness. And the only way to have this is to understand and know the love of God in Jesus Christ. And once you understand and know the love of God in Jesus Christ, then you can understand and apply that love of God within the context of all relationships, but especially, especially within the context of marriage. Let's have prayer. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it teaches us. Help us to be a people that are characterized not by bitterness, but by forgiveness. Not by vitriol, but by love and grace and mercy. And may this most of all be characterized within our own homes. Forgive us where we have failed you, we pray. And teach us to walk in the way that you've laid out for us. In Christ's name, amen.